0: we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we're finishing that. But we started 2 Corinthians a little bit earlier, back in August. I think I was saying, I think I've preached 20-some sermons out of this book. We come to the end, and I've entitled my message, Ready or Not, Here I Come. Because that's what Paul says to the church. He's planning his third visit. Probably most parents of young children who have tried to teach their young charges responsibility for taking care of their belongings and the importance of tidiness and their upkeep and in their room have probably sent their kids at some point into the room and saying, get that thing straightened up, have it straightened up and cleaned up and organized. And you've got about 30 minutes to get this done. And then mom and dad are going to come in there and we're going to inspect maybe more than 30 minutes go by and mom and dad remember they've enjoyed the quiet time but they remember oh yeah inspection time so they come into the room and they find their son distracted he's playing with some toy that he discovered under his bed or diddling around with some a long lost prize and uh, he hadn't done anything and then he of course, realizes he's gotten sidetracked, neglected his duties, missed the deadline, and now faces the serious consequences of parental authority, okay? We've probably all done that. Well, that is somewhat of an innocuous example of irresponsibility, maybe all too common with young children, and we kind of excuse it. But when it comes to this passage of Scripture, we see a similar problem regarding sinful attitudes and sinful actions with professing adult Christians. And the consequences that they're going to face are far more serious. They have been diddling. They have been neglecting what Paul has written to them. In other letters, we know that there were probably four at least letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but it didn't seem to have its impact. And now Paul says, I'm coming. This is the third time I'm coming to you. And I'm going to inspect. I'm going to look over if you've implemented the things I've told you to do according to the authority of the word of God. So Paul brings his letter to a close. Here in the verses that we're looking at this morning. His great love for the Corinthians has constrained him to make one last appeal. And that's really what this section is. One final appeal before his arrival. He told them to get ready because he was coming to visit this, maybe we would say, wayward child. This is his problem child. Of all the churches he's planted and all the letters he's written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this was his wayward child. This was his problem child. And he did not want his third visit to be another painful experience. He uses that term several times, a painful experience, both for him, the apostle, and for them as the body of believers He had opened his heart to them. This is Paul's probably most transparent book. He revealed his struggles and his fears and his heart for them. He says it to them in one place. He says, oh, you Corinthians, my heart is wide open to you, but your heart is restricted towards me. There's only a couple of times that Paul addresses the church that he's writing to. By name in the body of his letter, the Corinthians. He does that in Galatians. Oh, you Galatians, who hath bewitched you? He was so upset with them. But he says, My heart is wide open. So Paul had been transparent with them, opening up his heart to them. He explained his ministry to them as an apostle, as a church planner, and why he didn't accept money for preaching the gospel in in new church plants so he explained the philosophy of his ministry he answered their accusations they said well we we've heard much better preachers we've we've had these Judean false teachers they didn't call them that Paul called them pseudo apostles false apostles and they called them super apostles but he called them pseudo apostles. Paul says, listen, I may not be a great teacher or preacher. I may not be a a demagogue. I may not be an orator, but when it comes, he says in the previous chapter, he says, when it comes to knowledge, I have it because it came from God. He answers their accusations. He warned them about the false teachers, and then he urged them to submit to the word of God. So he's done all of those things in the body of this letter, this epistle. And now he closes out his document with three areas of concern. To tell you the truth, this doesn't happen a lot, but I had a struggle trying to put it all together into a a message and, and outline it and come up with a general theme. And I've been doing this a long time, 40 some years. Normally that's not my problem, you've heard me say, I kind of like to think of myself as a sermonator, not, not the terminator. That, that's a different guy. A sermonator, you know, because I, I like to read a passage and say, now how would I outline this? What's the main idea? How would I put it together? What, how, do, how does this fit together? That's what sermonizing is. That's what homiletics is all about. I struggled a little bit with this section, but I think I got it. Paul is saying to them, ready or not, here I come. You better get ready. And he points out to them in this passage of scripture, three deficits that they had. That he wants them, he's reminding them one more time, three deficits that they had to correct. Probably everybody here who's had a working career has had a job review. You know, a job review, we try to compliment people, say, this is what you do well, but here's some areas you need to work on. Here's some deficit that I see that you need to address. That's kind of what Paul is doing here. It's kind of like his final job review. Here are the deficits I want you to address before I come. First, they had a deficit regarding their appreciation, particularly of the Apostle Paul. And he says to them in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 12 that they had a deficit. They were not appreciative. So let's kind of revisit those verses. For what is it in which you were inferior to the other churches? Did I treat you like you were inferior to the other churches, is what Paul is saying? Except I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me. Paul is using some subtle irony there in his statement. Forgive me of this wrong that I didn't take your money. Now for this third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burdensome. I wasn't burdensome in the past. I'm not going to be a burden. But I think Paul is also saying, I really don't want to cause trouble. That's not why I'm coming. I want to come and help you, not cause trouble. So deal with these things I'm going to talk about. Now the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. I don't seek what you have. I want your heart. I don't want your wallet. I want your heart for God. For the children ought not to lay up for their parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend of myself, is the idea, and what I have. And be spent for your souls, though more abundantly I love you, the less I receive love back from you. I am love. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those things over those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? So Paul is saying, you know, and he's rehearsed earlier in the book, all that he sacrificed and he explains his philosophy of ministry of not taking money from church plants lest they think he's in the ministry for the money. But they had no appreciation for him. And Paul uses some subtle irony here when he says, how were you inferior to the other churches? Except that I was never a burden to you. Forgive me of this wrong. He says in verse 13, would you love me more or would you love me at all if I, if I extracted money from you? is what he's saying, but I didn't. Forgive me for not extracting money from you. Paul is saying, because I didn't collect money from you, doesn't mean I didn't neglect you, I loved you. Paul wrote more letters to this church than any other church that he planted, as far as we know. He spent more time visiting this church than any other church that he planted, as far as we know. He probably spent more time in prayer about this church than any of the other churches. So he's saying, I didn't neglect you. Even though I didn't take your money, I never neglected you. Paul had persevered with this church, as he talked about so much earlier, external persecutions, internal problems. The weight of all the churches are upon me. And remember he rehearsed a sermon or two back. I spent a day and a night in the deep, 235 lashes I received. I was stoned to death, etc. He went through the whole list of, not the whole list, but an extended list of things that he had suffered. His sacrificial ministry to them had cost them nothing, but they didn't appreciate it. You know, sometimes that's true. That which costs us nothing, sometimes we don't appreciate. If we have to pay a little bit, it makes us aware of it. If we have to pay a lot, sometimes we, we really value that thing. And Paul's saying it seems to be the case with you. Because you didn't have to sacrifice me. You didn't pay me. It seems like you don't appreciate the ministry that I carried on with you in spite of the sacrifices that I made. It seemed, and Paul says it here in verse 15, the more I loved you, the less you reciprocated my love. I think the old statement, I think it's an old statement from Dr. Bob Senior. He said, when the fire of gratitude dies out on the altar of a man's heart he's well nigh hopeless or well nigh worthless when the fire of gratitude when we're no longer grateful for the sacrifices that people have made for us or the things that we have received when that fire of gratitude dies out what are we good for Gratitude is one of the most important things in life. And when we lose a, a sense of gratitude, we become kind of cynical. We just kind of become just bland towards people. So Paul is saying that seems to be the case with you. Look what he says here in the next phrase. The Judaizers had used crafty methods. As a matter of fact, I'm going to ask you to turn back here chapter 4. Verse two, same book, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, one and two. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We don't faint. Paul says, we've experienced the mercy from God that drives us on in mercy. We don't quit. We don't drop out. We don't faint. Now look at verse two. And we have also renounced the hidden things of shame. We don't do the ministry with smoke and mirrors. We're not deceivers, for we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So the Judaizers had used crafty methods to exploit the church because Corinth was a wealthy city, and there were probably a lot of wealthy people in the church at Corinth. But Paul says what? Look at verse 16. I've only been transparent with you. The only trick, and he uses that word, the only trick that Paul played on them was his refusal to receive financial support for the, from them. He says in the last part of verse 17 and verse 18, and none of his associates did it either. Titus came to them. Other people had come to them. We know that from scripture. Other people, Apollos had been with them. and None of them received support. So Paul says, I didn't receive money from you. My associates didn't receive money from you. But yet you lack appreciation. He's really saying it this way in our modern vernacular. That he didn't fleece the Corinthians, he fed them. He didn't fleece them, he fed them. He didn't, or his associates didn't build them out of their funds, he built them up in the faith. Very different from what the Judaizers did. His first thing he's communicating to them in verses 13 through 18 is their lack of appreciation. It makes you say, why? Why this lack of appreciation? Which leads us to the second thing he discusses with them. The great root cause of their astounding lack of appreciation was because they lacked consecration to the Lord. They had all these sins going on. That's why he wrote to them earlier and says, you know, you can't be hooked up with false teachers and you can't be worshiping at the idol's and still worship God come out from among them and be separate saith the Lord separate from those things there was all kinds of sin in the church which means there was sin with the people so number two they had a deficit regarding their consecration they really weren't consecrated to the Lord sometimes we use the term carnal Christians because Paul deals with that he says he talks about carnal Christians He talks about the natural man, which is the unsaved man. And then he talks about spiritual Christian. We would probably put the Corinthians in that category of some of them were carnal Christians and some of them were just plain unsaved. They were the natural man, the lost man. There were some terrible sins in the church. Let's pick up our reading again in verse 19. We work through verse 18. He says in verse 19, Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you as I wish, or it's literally the word pray, desire. You're not gonna be what I desire. And that... I shall be found by you such as you do not wish you 're going to find me very upset because you haven't changed. lest there be now he gets into a sinla, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath selfish ambitions, backbitings, whispering, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again my God will humble me amongst you and I shall mourn for many who have sinned because they have not repented of uncleanness, fornication, lewdness, which they have practiced. And then he goes on to say, this will be the third time I'm coming to you and by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And I'm not sure if that meant I'm coming to you the third time. It's established by two or three visits. But it's a quote here. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell if I were present the second time and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not spare. And he stops in the middle of his sentence. So they had a deficit in regards to their consecration. He's saying, you still got these sin problems that I've been writing to you about, that others have been coming and warning you about. There were some terrible sins in the church, and Paul wanted them to be judged, be repented of, and put away before he comes. Otherwise, he says, there will be another painful experience, both for him and both for them. As I said, I think earlier, Paul was coming to solve problems, not cause problems. That's why he wanted them to deal with the problems. So we didn't have to deal with them when he came. Sins in the church meant that there were sins in individual lives. And sin must be faced honestly. We have a tendency to rename our sin. Instead of calling it adultery, Our culture likes to call it an affair. Instead of calling it drunkenness, our society, our culture, and many times Christians, you know, call it an addiction. Like the article I handed out last week, they're re-explaining and redefining everything in our culture so there are no consequences when we know there are consequences. And we don't want to do that. Sin must be faced honestly and dealt with courageously. In other words, it takes some guts, it takes some courage, it takes some backbone to deal with our own sins. We have to be honest with ourselves. Sometimes we have to be honest with other people. That's what Paul was trying to do. And yes, it can be uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable for spouses. It can be uncomfortable for parents. It can be uncomfortable for pastors. I'm writing someone in our church that right now has left his wife and living with someone else. It's uncomfortable. So Paul is dealing with it. He's being honest and he's being courageous about it. Sweeping sins under the carpet only makes matters worse. You've heard me say probably many times, we either have small problems sooner or we have big problems later. The snowball comes down the hill, and pretty soon it's an avalanche. So Christians face our problems. We square our shoulders, we ask for strength from God, we ask for grace from God, and we say, God this has been a problem in my life or this has been a problem in my family, but I, I, I know what you want me to deal with it. I don't want to excuse it away. I'll sweep it under the carpet and give a different name to it so it's more palatable. Sin in the church is like cancer in the body. You go to the doctor and he says, you have stage three cancer. You don't say, well, doc, let me deal with it. There are people that do that. But generally we say, cut it out. Uh, give me chemo, give me radiation. Because we know if we don't deal with the cancer and it continues to grow, it's gonna kill us. So we deal with sin in the church like we deal with cancer in the body. And that involves repentance. Repentance. And it's not a bad word. It's not an ugly word. It's a good word. It's something that God has given to us so we can have continuing fellowship with him and with other people and have the blessing of God and the free-flowing grace of the Holy Spirit operating in our life. Repentance. Repentance is not only necessary to come into the christian life but it's a necessity to maintain a sanctified life you have to repent of your sins jesus said it over and over repent lest ye all likewise perish john the baptist said it why are you coming down here to the jordan you need to repent of your sins he said to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers And that was the religious establishment. So repentance is like the front door. It's like the welcome mat to come into the house. Repentance is necessary to come into the Christian life, but that isn't the last time we repent. Repentance is a necessity for the sanctified life, for the growing Christian, because the Holy Spirit begins to put his finger on things in our life that aren't right. I've I've used the example before. If you came to, if you pulled in here tonight after dark into our church parking lot, if you've never been here before, you know, you pull off of Morrison and you uh, pull onto McIntyre and you start driving towards the building, you say, it's a large building. You can see that from a distance. You pull up a little closer and your headlights are on. You can say, well, I see columns out front and it looks like the lower part of the columns are stone and the upper part of the columns are brick looks like the you know the facade is is a stucco you you keep pulling up closer don't get too close we don't you run into anything but you pull up closer you can see the grout lines between the brick and between the stones because the closer your headlights show at night upon the facade of the building the more detail you can see that's like the christian life and that's a wonderful thing you know when we first get saved for for some of us it was it was some of the heinous external sins that that we were convicted of, and, and maybe it was alcohol, or maybe it was drug use, or maybe it was immorality, or maybe it was a swearing, or, or maybe it was what we watched. There was a, probably a whole list of things, and the Holy Spirit began to convict us about those things, and they began to fall off. But it doesn't stop there. As we grow in our Christian life, He convicts us about kind words. Acts of grace towards people, sharing the gospel. He convicts us about more and more things so we conform to the image of Jesus Christ. And that comes with repentance. Repentance is important for growth and it's an ongoing process in the sanctified life after we're saved. And many of these folks in the church at Corinth had never repented and been saved, but probably many of them were carnal Christians that still had the trappings of the old life and they needed to repent of them so they could have the blessing of God and God could use them. And maybe there's some people here today that I'm speaking to that are in exactly that same position. You're saved, you're on your way to heaven but there are the trappings of the old life, and there are things that the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on that is, uh, I don't want to deal with us. And that's too bad. And we should. And Paul says, What? What does he say here in these verses? If I come to you, I don't want to be humbled. I don't want to be humbled by these things. Look at verse 21. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me. Paul is saying, I'm going to be embarrassed, is what he's saying. I'm going to be humbled that there's so little work that by the Holy Spirit that hasn't been taking place. I'm going to be embarrassed by the carnality that I see. And what does he say? And I shall mourn. It's going to, it's going to cause me to, to mourn, to weep that you're not farther along in your Christian life, that you haven't dealt with the things that I've been writing to you about and others have been preaching to you about. Notice the list of things that he mentions in verses 20 and 21. And by the way, they're both sins of the spirit and sins of the flesh. I'm gonna ask you to turn back one more time. Chapter seven, verse one, same book. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse one, because Paul mentions the sins of the spirit and the sins of the flesh. Therefore, having these promises that we receive from God that change us, he says, transitioning from chapter six, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. So we're involved in it. We don't take the attitude that, no, oh, Holy Spirit washed us out of my life and I'll go my own way. We're involved in it. Let us cleanse ourselves From all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. And the Bible elaborates on that. There are sins of the spirit and there are sins of the flesh. Early in our Christian life, it was true for me, because I got saved as a young adult. There were sins of the flesh that were all over me. And I had to confess them and I had to forsake them and it didn't happen overnight. There are sins of the flesh, but after that, we go on to the sins of the Spirit. So he deals with both of these in these verses here. Let's just look at them. What does he say here? Contentions. These are the sins of the Spirit. Contention. Jealousy. You can be jealous. Maybe nobody knows it. Probably they will. Outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambition. Backbitings. Whisperings. Conceits. Tumults. I would put probably all of them as sins of the spirit. And then you go down to verse 21, uncleanness, I'm talking about sexual lasciviousness, fornication, lewdness, doing, watching, imagining, in involving yourself in, in uh, unholy, sinful habits. Those are sins of the flesh. So he deals with both of these: sins of the spirit and sins of the flesh. And most of these, they don't need any explanation. I don't need to elaborate on these. We all get it. We all understand that. What does he say in the next verse, chapter 13, verse 1? Prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves. He says, I will not spare another verse down. I will not spare any. He he doesn't even finish the sentence there in verse 2. You better get ready because when I come, if you haven't dealt with these sins that I'm hearing reports about that are still in the church, I will not spare. There was a lack of consecration. And if that was true in the church at Corinth, it's probably true of the church in America today. We live in a different world than the Puritan world. We live in a different world than the 1940s and 50s when it comes to church behavior. When it comes to Christian lifestyle, prepare yourselves. A strong warning is issued to the believers. And he says here, like Jesus Christ, I am strong when I appear to be weak. Uh, That's what he says here. I've told you before and told you in the present the second time. The proof verse three, since you see proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, Jesus appeared to be weak. And Paul says, I may appear to be weak, but I'm with you. I will be what does he say in the last part of verse three? I will be mighty towards you. He tells him to prepare himself. Jesus appeared to be weak, but he was really strong because he was crucified jesus allowed the people around him the romans and the jews were involved in that as we well know to crucify him jesus could have called for a legion of angels he could have wiped them out he appeared to be weak in the eyes of the world in the eyes of men Paul appeared to be weak when he was compared to the Judaizers or to the Greek orators. He appeared to be weak, and he had a weak body. His body was debilitated. We know that. He's told us that. We get it. But he was mighty in his spirit. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And that's what he makes reference to here. But the cross is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The cross is the power of God. And that's what he preached. So by the world standards, both Paul and Jesus Christ were weak. But by divine standards, they were both mighty, he says. Don't look just on the externals. Look at the results. Look at the blessing of God. So they had a deficit when it came to their consecration, and he deals with that. Cast off these sins. Repent of them. Uh, Allow the Holy Spirit to work in you. Now in verses 5 through 13, chapter 13, verses 5 through 13, they had a deficit regarding their examination. They didn't personally examine themselves, and he tells them that. Look at verse five, examine yourself. That's applicable to us. I suppose people can get too introspective and too self-critical, but that doesn't happen to most people. That's not most people's problem. Most people blow off their sins or blow off the Holy Spirit's conviction. But what does he say here? Verse five, examine yourself as to whether or not you're in the faith. He wants them to question whether they're really saved or not. Whether you're in the faith, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? If Christ isn't in you, you're not even in the race. You're not a part of the body. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil not that you should appear approved but that you should do what is honorable though we may seem disqualified you don't think highly of us still do what's honorable for we can do nothing against the truth but for the truth but we are glad when we are weak and you are strong and this also we pray that you may be made complete therefore i write these things Being absent, lest being absent, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Let's unpack that a little bit. He tells them, examine yourselves. See if you're in the faith. Test yourself to make sure that you're in the body of Christ. Paul is saying, You've been examining me. And they have been. They've been criticizing Paul. They've been examining him. They've been comparing him with others. He says, you've been examining me. Why don't you take the time and examine yourselves? Often those who are quick to examine and condemn others are often guilty of worse sins. So he says you examine yourself. And one of the ways people try to make themselves look good is by criticizing and condemning others. And they had fallen prey to that. Paul is asking them if they really had been born again. That's what he's asking them. Because he sees these problems. He hears these reports. They're dealing with these issues. And he's saying, have you really been born again? Are you really a part of the family of God or do you just go to church? That's, That's a viable question. That's a worthwhile question. Are there tests? Because he says, test yourself. Are there tests in the New Testament that we can use to find out if we're truly saved? And the answer is yes. Let me give you some of them. First, do you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Romans chapter eight, verses nine and verse 13. Because the Bible says that we will have a confidence we will have the Holy Spirit will testify to us that we are children of God. So he says, Do you have the Holy Spirit testifying, witnessing to you that you are God's child? That's the first test I'll throw out there. The second one, do you love the brethren? First John 3:14 says that if we're saved, we're we're in the the family of God, then we will love the family. We will love our brothers and sisters. If you despise Christians and, and you get frustrated all the time by other believers in the church, you better examine yourself. Yes, we all have faults and we all have flaws, but God hasn't called us to love ideal people. He's called us to love real people. And they're right here. If we're dismissive, we have no love for the brethren, question whether or not you're saved. That's the second test. Third, do you practice righteousness? First John 2 and 3 9. That's the third test. Many of these are in 1 in John. But do you practice like righteousness? In other words, we find that an awkward phrase. Do we live a righteous life? Christians live and desire to live a righteous life, a holy life. If you have no desire to live righteously or godly in Christ Jesus, as the Bible says, you better question your profession. One more. Have you overcome the world so that you're practicing a life of separation? 1 John 5, 4. The Bible calls us overcomers. We overcome the world. We overcome our culture. We overcome our old habits that characterize the old life. We're overcomers. And he says there that in that passage, 1 John 5 4, that we will overcome the world. We will be separate from it. We live in it, but we're not characterized by the world. We have to live in it. We don't isolate ourselves, we're not monkish. But we overcome the world. We're not tainted all the time by the world. So those are just a few of the tests. And Paul made it clear in verse seven that he did not want them to fail this test. That's what he says to them. I don't want you to fail the test just so you can prove that I'm right, that I think a lot of you are carnal and lost. He said, I don't want you to fail the test. That's what he's saying in verse seven. Nor did he want them to live a God-fearing life just so he could boast about them. Well, look at the church at Corinth. Look at, look at how my influences changed them. He said, that's not what I'm interested in. What does he say? He was not concerned about his reputation, but about their Christian character. That's what he says in verse nine. I'm kind of summarizing here because we're running out of time. So he wanted them to test themselves. And that's not a bad thing for any of us to do. We don't need to do it every day, but as we look at our life and things are hanging on and we're not changing, we're not getting stuff out of the word, and we don't love the brethren or all the other things I've just mentioned here. We need to ask ourselves, am I really saved? Have I been born again? Look at verse eleven. Some final admonitions here. He says, Become complete. Become complete. That means grow in your spiritual maturity. Complete is the idea of mature, fulfilled, reaching completion, reaching the finish line. Become complete in your spiritual maturity. These exhortations all have to do with living properly within the body of Christ. Balanced Christian growth and ministry is impossible in isolation. Can I say that again? Balanced Christian living and ministry are impossible. In isolation, you cannot be a good lone wolf Christian. Matter of fact, there's no exhortations in the New Testament that are outside of the local body. We don't see any context of Christians living outside of the local church. It doesn't exist according to the New Testament. We need one another. So these are all exhortations given to the church. Just as a baby needs a loving family, if it's going to grow and become normal and balanced in life, it needs a loving family. And so do Christians. Sheep must flock together. Sheep don't live by themselves. They can't make it. They have to have a shepherd. and They need other sheep around them. What does he say here? Seeking peace showing love for the family are very important verse 12 he says greet one another with a holy kiss now we don't do that here that's kind of a first century christian cultural way of saying i love you i have philadelphia for you i have i have phileo for you i have brotherly affection for you wasn't a kiss on the lips it was a kiss on the cheek sometimes it was just a hug In parts of the world, they still do that. That's just a way of saying, I care for you. I love you. And you can whisper to me your needs or whatever. And he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. We would say today, find out how people are doing. Care for one another. Greet one another warmly and and with kindness and show concern for one another. That's really how we would apply it today. Don't avoid people. Don't put your eyes down when you see someone coming down the hallway you don't care for. Don't do the look away thing. Ask people how they're doing. And if you can help them, help them. That's what he's saying here. Paul concludes with a wonderful benediction which highlights the Trinity. Notice what it says here in verse 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Of course, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's how we're saved. Because of His sacrifice on the cross, grace comes to us, and redeems us. And the love of God, it was the Father that planned it from eternity path, because He has love for us, for God so loved the world. In the communion with the Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit that knits us together in communion, in fellowship. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes. He convicts us of sin. Helps us to see the things in the word, but he knits us together in the body. What a wonderful exhortation in his benediction. Well, this church had troubles. It was Paul's problem child. As I said earlier, this church had troubles, but neither God nor Paul gave up on them. They didn't write them off, and neither should we. May we be encouraged to continue making progress in our Christian life despite our troubles. Anybody here not had any any troubles in your Christian life? Of course you have. And you know what? If we're going to be the kind of church that God wants us to be, there are going to be all kinds of people coming in on a regular basis that have troubles, that have problems, that have sin issues in their life. We don't dismiss them. We don't ignore them. We don't duck around them. We love them. We help them. We speak truth to them. That's what Paul did to the church. That's what God does for the church, not just the Corinthian church, but his church, the church universal. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Here was a troubled church, but I think really truthfully, it became Paul's not only problem child, but his beloved child. And Lord, you know that all of us struggle. Sin issues crop up in our life. Faults and flaws and the old man hangs on. And Lord, we ask that you will not give up on us, but your Holy Spirit would be operating mightily in us. Changing us, wooing us, encouraging us, cleaning us up and getting us back on the track. So Lord, if there are discouraged people here today, encourage them. If there are people that are satisfied with their sin, convict them. If there's people that we need to minister to, point them out to us and help us to do what you want us to do. Lord, if there's someone here that's unsaved, unsure about their eternal destiny, as I went through some of the tests of knowing whether or not we're in the faith, and they couldn't respond positively to several of those May they seek us out. May we be able to help them to settle this important matter of their salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.